Good morning. Well, today we continue our study through the parables of Jesus. Um, if you're new with us uh, and you haven't been here for months, uh, we have been looking at the life of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, and we are now in a series, which has been broken up just a little bit, on the parables of Jesus, the, the short stories that Jesus used to illustrate uh, how the kingdom of heaven is like and spiritual truths using these earthly stories and comparisons. Um, and so today we're actually going to look at a couple of parables together. Uh, in Matthew chapter 19, there's this famous interaction between Jesus and a rich young ruler. You probably know the story. Uh, if you've been at church for a while, you, you've for sure heard this story. This, this rich young ruler, this wealthy young guy who's doing well in life, comes to Jesus. He's Jewish. Jesus is Jewish. This is in a Jewish context. And he asks him, How, what must I do to have eternal life? What do I need to do? And Jesus correcting and, and making sure he understands who, who is truly God, God is good, tells him, well, you've got to do the law. And he's like, well, what law? Like, what laws? You know, uh, the Bible, the Old Testament, uh, there's lots of laws. There's many laws. And so he's like, well, what laws? And so Jesus tell, tells him, uh, do the laws that are the big laws. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. But he doesn't mention the first four. He mentions five of the last six. He tells him to honor your mother and father, uh, don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, uh, you know, watch what you say, and, and, uh, and don't, don't, I'm sorry, not watch what you say, don't steal, and, uh, and don't lie. He tells him five of the last of the commandments, and this was intentional, uh, for the Jews, you know, have you ever heard of the Ten Commandments? You've heard of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are broken up not in five and five, but four and six. The first four deal with our relationship with God. It's a vertical direction, how we honor God and, and worship God alone. And then the last six are how we treat one another. And these were very important to them in their culture. And so Jesus mentions five of the six, and he leaves out the last one, coveting on purpose. And so he tells the rich young ruler, do all these things. And the rich young ruler is like, I've done this my whole life. I have always obeyed these commandments. And Jesus tells him, but if you want to be complete, if you want to be perfect, there's one thing you lack. Go sell all of your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And the rich young ruler was distraught. He was upset. The Bible tells us because he had many possessions. He didn't want to let go of these possessions. And we find out that is why Jesus leaves out the 10th commandment, do not covet, because that was his issue. Jesus got to the heart of the matter with this issue with this rich young ruler. And he goes away upset, weeping. And the disciples come to Jesus and like... This is, this is not good. And Jesus tells him, it is difficult for a rich man to enter into the kingdom. As a matter of fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. The disciples were probably discouraged. 
They were for sure confused in a way, and they say to Jesus, well, then who can be saved? If that's true, if what you're saying is true, then who will follow us? I mean, we're starting a new movement with you being the Messiah. How can anybody join us if if this is true? It's impossible for man, but not possible with God, he tells them. The issue is this guy didn't want to give up what he had for Jesus. Well, our famous friend Peter sticks his foot in his mouth, and he starts thinking. He starts scratching his head. Well, unlike this rich young ruler who we all know is not a good guy at this point, uh, I've given up everything to follow him. So he speaks up and he says, "Uh, um, I have given up everything for you. I've left everything for you, so what will there be for us? I I want to read it to you in Matthew 19. If you have your Bibles, Matthew 19. We'll be in 19 and 20. They're really close together. In verse 27, just in case you can't add, you know, they're right next, numbers, whole numbers. Uh, Verse 27 in Matthew 19. Then Peter responded to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. So what will there be for us? And that's what we're going to talk about. That is the foundation of the parable that Jesus gives that we're going to study. Peter wants to know, uh, hey, what do I get for my service and sacrifice to you? Let, let's talk turkey. Let, let's negotiate terms. I, I want to talk with you, Jesus, about what I'm going to gain, how you are going to reward me. What am I going to get for being faithful to you? Oh, and Jesus is so patient. He he could have rebuked him on the spot. How wrong you're thinking. How crazy that is. How upside down that is compared to the kingdom. But he's gentle with him. Verse 28 isn't on the screen. I'll read it because it's a whole sermon in itself. I I know that uh, I don't have time for that. Uh, He says, Then Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone, verse 29, which is on the screen, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus is patient with Peter with this, so what am I going to receive? And he tells him, he begins with, listen, Peter... Everyone who's followed me will receive so much more than what they gave. They will receive more than what they gave up. Their sacrifice will not outweigh their reward. However, you need to know that the way that my kingdom works, the way that my father works, is not like how you reward and how you're generous. He doesn't do it like you. The last will be first and the first will be last. Now, Jesus uses this phrase uniquely in his day and time to explain, 
The way that God gives, the way that God is generous, the way that God, you know, you think you've given up stuff for Him, you think you're serving Him, the way He rewards is not what you would expect, and it's not like the world does it. That's verse 30, then chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like. So this is the connection. I know in our Bibles we have chapter 20, we have chapter 19. Chapters and verses, verse number references, that came in like the 1100s. That came a thousand years after Jesus said this. In the original, the way they wrote it, there was no division. So don't think in your mind that there's a separation between this parable and what just happened. This parable is about Peter's question, so what will there be for us? This is in response to that. So keep that in mind because that helps you interpret the parable. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Uh, This is a common day practice for them. Uh, A landowner, this individual had a large estate. He had a lot of land, and so he had a lot of farmland. Everything is agricultural in this day. So he had lots of farmland, and when you're a farmer, when you're a landowner, you have a lot of estate, you have a lot of property, you have seasons in which you need more workers. It's just like today. You know, there's busy season, even for farmers. There's sometimes when you can hire four extra guys to help you. And then there's sometimes in the dead of winter that you don't need extra help. You don't need to hire others. And so in this day, there were workers that were contract workers that would go out to the marketplace. That's like the main meeting place in every village and city. They would go out there and there would be guys that didn't have work. And they would be waiting in the marketplace. And so this was normal. Uh, This still happens today. Uh, When I was younger and in college, a cabinet installer hired me uh, as a laborer. And so because I knew his, his kids or his daughter went to the college I went to. And he decides to give me a weekend job. And so we had this week off, and I go with this cabinet installer. We take his truck from Mississippi to Memphis, Tennessee. That's where this new apartment complex, huge compound was being set up, and he had to install hundreds of cabinets. And so I go with him. What I didn't know was going to happen is we drive into Memphis, and right before you get into this huge new construction area, there were all these guys in work clothes waiting at the gate, waiting at the entrance. And he pulls up, and he gets out, And he starts speaking Spanish to this one guy. And all of a sudden, six guys end up hopping in the back of our truck. And we go to our site, and they help us install cabinets. I didn't know them, couldn't speak to them. I I don't speak Spanish. And and we hired them on the spot. And I was like, how did you do that? And he's like, well, as long as I pay that head guy that I was talking to first the most money, he takes care of everything else, and I need laborers. Just like it happens today, it happened back then. And these are contract workers. So this is a normal situation. Verse 2, after agreeing with the workers on one denarius, he sent them into his vineyard for the day. A denarius, I know you don't, we don't use that in America, a denarius. I've never seen someone take out a bill of denarius. Uh, this is just a normal daily wage for a laborer. Now, this is a bottom of the totem pole laborer, but this is an average labor wage. And so these guys are sitting there. They're early in the morning. This is 6 a.m., by the way, the Some of your translations say the first hour, the third hour, sixth hour, ninth hour, all that. This is a Jewish book, you know, this is a Jewish context. And so these guys are there at 6 a.m. at the marketplace, and they're ready to go. They got their construction belts on, their hammers, their stuff. They're ready to do the work. The landowner gets there, and they start negotiating. That's what the word agreement in verse 2 means. It means that they, they negotiate a term 
Okay, if I work for you today, what are you going to pay me? Now, that's important. Why? Because that's what Peter was doing just moments before. That's the connection. Peter was wanting to negotiate with Jesus, so what will be there for us? And Jesus is using the story to connect and explain what Peter's doing. So these guys do what every laborer would do. Uh, I'll do it for this much. I'll do it for that much. How can we get to So they meet an agreement. They, can, they make a verbal contract. I'll give you a denarius. They're like, this is great. This is a normal day's wage. This will work. We need work. Can't find work somewhere else. That's why we're here in the marketplace. And so, uh, so the landowner hires them. Then verse 3. When he went out about 9 in the morning, your translation might say the third hour. And if you're, if you're like me, if you, if you, you know, I know the math doesn't work out. The first hour is 6 a.m., the third hour is 9 a.m., um, and then the, the sixth hour is noon, the ninth hour is 3 p.m. I know the first hour doesn't make any sense, but that's 6 a.m. So he goes out again at 9 a.m., and then he goes out again uh, at noon uh, to go get more workers. So he, when he went out about 9 in the morning, or your translation may say the third hour, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He said to them, you also go into my vineyard and I will give you whatever is right. So off they went. So he goes in about 9 a.m. These guys are standing around the marketplace still needing work. And he says, you go into my vineyard and I will give you whatever is right. It's the word for righteous. I will give you what's fair and just. And this is important because there's a distinction between these 9 a.m. workers and the 6 a.m. workers. The 9 a.m. workers don't negotiate a price. They don't negotiate a wage. It's 9 a.m. These guys are sweating a little bit. Are we going to get work today? And so they're just happy to receive work. And they choose to put their faith in the landowner. He doesn't negotiate a term with them. He says, I'll give you whatever's fair. And they say, okay, we trust you. We'll go and work. So they're happy to go to work. Verse 5, about noon and about 3, I know your translation may say the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he went out again and did the same thing. Then about 5, that's 5 p.m., or uh, in your translation it may say the 11th hour. That's where we get the English term. If you've ever heard someone say, oh man, they came in at the 11th hour, that, that doesn't mean 5 p.m. It means it is the last hour. So in this context, a workday is between 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. That is your average standard day. They don't have clocks like we do, so of course it's not as precise. If you've ever been on international mission trips, you know the rest of the world, they don't view time the same way as we do. So it's not very exact. And so they have this term of third hour, sixth hour, ninth hour, that kind of thing. And so there's like a 12-hour workday. And so the 11th hour or 5 p.m., there's only one hour left of work. And he goes out to the marketplace again looking for workers, looking for laborers. And he went and found others standing around and said to them, Why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Verse 7, because no one hired us. The landowner goes to these guys and says, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Your translation might say, why are you standing here idle? It doesn't mean they're being lazy. There's not a rebuke. In this context, it's not a rebuke. He's saying, why are you here, basically, and don't have any work? 
You don't have what you're here for. Why are you here standing here all day? He actually uses the verb in the perfect tense. Why have you been standing here all day? Now, the reason that's important in this language is what he's saying is these workers have been standing there all day. They're still standing there right now at the 11th hour, and they would still be standing there in the future if this landowner doesn't come and give them a job. It's not a rebuke against them. They're not lazy. They're not bad. Notice that Jesus is not going to the local pub and and trying to find some guys to work for him. These men are still in the marketplace desiring work. They want to work. They're hoping and praying for someone to come hire them. They don't want to give up. You have that picture of a man who wants to provide for his family and he won't go home, not empty-handed. They will not leave empty-handed. They, for them to survive, for them to take care of their family, their loved ones, they need work. And so we ask them, how come? Why, why are you still not finding work? And they tell them, no one's hired us. There is no savior. There is no landowner. There is no rich man. There's no work. There's no employer. There's no one to help us out of this situation. And so he tells them, go into my vineyard. However they hear his voice of go into my vineyard, they know he's trying to take care of us. And so in faith they go, just like the other guys before him. In faith they go and uh, they work for him. What Jesus is doing at this point of the story is pivoting from what is normal. This story began just like any normal situation except for this. No employer goes out at the 11th hour and gets someone to work for him for one hour. No one does that. You don't even have enough money to give them for one hour. There is no currency that they have to give them something for one hour. What are they going to give them, a, a loaf of bread? There's almost nothing that they would earn in one hour's worth of work. And what it does is it demonstrates God's compassion and his mercy. This landowner cares about them. He wants them to have a purpose. He wants them to be able to provide for their family. He knows that if they go home empty-handed, their kids have nothing to eat. He cares about them. That's why he keeps going back to the marketplace. It's, It's different than what would normally happen which goes to prove God rewards generously. Or you could say God provides generously. Jesus, in telling the story, wants to begin with the truth that God, who Peter is questioning, what's in it for me? What are you going to give me? That God is generous with us. He gives us a purpose He wants us to be fulfilled. He wants us to be able to provide for ourselves. He is the one that cares enough to continue to go out to the marketplace and find anyone who's willing. If you're willing to work and trust him, he'll give you work. And so this demonstrates God's generosity. Then in verse 8, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard told his foreman, call the workers and give them their pay, starting with the last and ending with the first. He wants to provide for them. Now, in the Jewish law, because God cares so much for the poor, he actually made a law 
that you have to pay someone their wages the day they work. Did you know that? In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 13, listen as I read. Do not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages due a hired worker must not remain with you until morning. Don't hold it till the next day. Deuteronomy 24, 15. You are to pay him his wages each day before the sun sets because he is, de- he is poor and depends on them. Otherwise, he will cry out to the Lord against you and you will be held guilty. You see how even in the Old Testament, even in the law, God's heart is demonstrated. I want them to be cared for. I care for them. I want them to be provided for. And Jesus shares that through this parable in the New Testament. I want them to have what they need. God is not only generous, but he's compassionate. However, and this is where the story turns. However, we don't always receive God's generosity well. We don't always understand the way that God rewards and gives. We don't see it through his eyes. We see it through our eyes. And so that's what Jesus is trying to correct in Peter and for us through the parable. This is where the parable pivots. Verse 9, when those who were hired about five came, they each received one denarius or denarius. So when the first ones came, they assumed they would get more, but they also received a denarius each. So get this picture. There's all these guys that have been working. Um, when I, also when I was in college, when I wasn't installing cabinets, which I only did for one summer, I worked for a beekeeper in the Delta in Mississippi. Um, I don't know if you've ever visited the surface of the sun, but <laughs> is is very hot. It's very hot. And I had to wear a bee suit. You know those white suits with the net hat? Okay, okay. That does not keep you from getting stung. That's what I thought. Boy, was I wrong. And you're wrong if you think that. All it does is when you get stung, and you normally get stung on the back and the shoulders, you do this. And you flip out the stinger because it hurts so bad. You flip it out and you get to do that. The white suit also reflects the sun and it also makes bees less aggravated, hypothetically. But you still get stung. I would go out there. I remember working one summer and I went out there in the Delta in Mississippi. And I think it was about 175 degrees outside. And we would bring these coolers, these five-gallon jugs, two of them, strap them to the work truck. And we'd fill them with Gatorade, this lemon Gatorade, you know, the yellow Gatorade. And every single stop, we would drive all over Mississippi, all these farmlands, all these farmers that let us put hive, uh, you'd, you'd set hives up in, in different spots, so they'd, they would uh, pollinate the, the crops, the beans and all that, and, and farmers liked it, it was a mutual agreement, so we would drive all over Mississippi. We, sometimes we would drive from one site to another, it'd take us 30 minutes, it just depended on the day and the need and you know, how hives were doing. And we'd go out there, every single time we stopped, I'd get out of the truck, I'd get me a cup, I'd fill it up, I'd down some Gatorade. I, would, I, was, the, I was a monkey, basically. I, they, I was just labor. I was, a, I was a college kid, so I had to carry all these boxes up this ramp onto this work truck, and I'd have to strap them down. I was sweating all day, and this guy, man, he loved to work from morning till night. He just, he just thought you were fulfilled if you worked for 12 hours in a day. He's a farmer. And so we would start in the morning, and we'd work, and buddy, at the end of the day, I'd come... Walking in, uh, I remember when I first got there, I didn't have all the normal attire 
that had to be shipped still. This is like before Amazon was a thing. And I had to duct tape, I'm talking silver duct tape, my jeans to my boots that weren't mine. That's the kind of life I was living then. It's pretty poor. And, uh, and I'd go in there and I'd unstrap these boots and I'd be soaking wet and, I'd be, and I would have to go straight to the shower. You had to take a shower as soon as you come in. Miss Powell did not like it if you did not shower. So I'd take a shower. I felt so tired. That's the image of these 6 a.m. guys, the first guys. They've been working all day. They're sore. They're tired. They're sweaty. I mean, they have just had a day. And these 5 o'clock guys, these 11 o'clock guys, they probably, their hair was still nice. They, they probably still smelled like cologne. You know, they come in with their essential oils because that probably was a thing then too. They come in and they, they've worked one hour. They've barely broken a sweat. It's like, oh, do I get a splinter? They did nothing. They've done nothing. One hour of work. And, and these guys that are tired and barely able to stand, they're looking at these five o'clock guys and, and all of a sudden they, they see the foreman give them a denarius. And buddy, did they perk up. They just got a pep in their step and they, they started doing the math. You know, they're laborers, so maybe they were off by a couple. But, you know, they're doing the math and they're like, wait, wait, wait a minute. This guy's paying them a day's wage for one hour. We've worked 12 hours. You know what that translates in my book? I'm about to get paid for two weeks for one day's work. And buddy, they got excited and they were ready. They're, you know, I could work for five more hours. They just were so pumped. They're like getting the sweat out of their eyes. They get up to the line. The foreman's sitting there at the desk and they're like, okay, come give it to me, give it to me. And the guy's like, here's one denarius. Their countenance falls. They're looking at this and they're going, wait a minute. You gave Mr. One Hour this. I've worked all day. They did not like that. They assumed in verse 10 that they would get more. And so would we. But that's the problem with human beings, our eyes. Comparison promotes entitlement. When we look at what God has given someone else, it's hard not to feel like, wait a minute, then am I getting everything I deserve? I mean, if you're generous with them, how come you're not being generous with me? You know, in our lives, something, a, a modern day example. Uh, I'm, I'm a preacher, and uh, we went to a conference this summer uh, for our denomination, and one of the preachers just, man, he, he had us in tears, he had us laughing, he was just, it was amazing, just so gifted, and uh, he didn't do anything to earn it, he just so gifted, and I remember sitting there thinking, Lord, would you give me the gift of teaching? I would have nothing to do all my life, but I would love to teach your word, I want to teach like that. Now, I can't teach like him. He's got a special gift. Everyone around him knows it. He's known for it. He, he, he is going to be known for this gift. But when you, see, when you see God being generous with someone else, doesn't it kind of develop this desire like, I want this for me? I want this for me. If he gives someone the gift of encouragement or administration or beauty, or intelligence, or athleticism? Does it make you feel bad if you're not as good, you're not as gifted, 
you're not as fill in the blank. One of the counseling sessions that I dread as a pastor, that I, in full transparency, I, I fear this meeting. There's a husband and a wife, and the wife cannot have children. I fear that meeting because I don't know what to say. I feel like I have nothing to say. This woman is tormented. Billions of women around the world. Some women aren't even married. They're not even living a godly lifestyle and they're getting pregnant. How come God won't give me a child? When you see what God has given to others, it, it has the potential to cause you to feel like, how come he doesn't give it to me? Why do we think this way? In part, it's because we hold God accountable to promises he's never made. We hold God accountable to promises he's never made. He did not promise any of us Health, children, money, convenience, comfort, ease. Has he promised any of us this? He hasn't promised it to me. He's promised me eternal life. He's promised me himself. He's promised me a new heavens and a new earth. When you see someone else with a marriage that just seems so happy and full of joy, and yours is not. Does it drive you to bitterness? Does it drive you to frustration with God? When we see God being gracious and generous to others, we naturally expect more. I think that's why Jesus is being so gentle with Peter. His question isn't just the selfish, what about us? It's deeply rooted in all of us. Verse 10, I'll go back to verse 10. So when the first ones came, they assumed they would get more, but they also received a denarius each. When they received it, they began to complain to the landowner. They get it from the foreman and they think, I want to, talk, I want to go up the ladder. I, you know what, I'm done with you. And the foreman's like, hey, this is what he told me to pay you. He, he said this is the agreement. This is what was going to, I want to talk to the landowner. They go to the landowner and they complain. Your, your translation may say grumble. In one translation, an older translation, it says murmur. It's this idea of murmur. It's just, ugh. They start grumbling. And this is what they say. Pay attention to what they say in verse 12. These last men, the ones that got hired at 5 p.m. and worked from 5 to 6, one hour, these last men put in one hour. And you made them equal to us who bore the burdens of the day's work and the burden, the burning heat. We worked more than they did, but you made them equal to us. You gave to them what we worked for. So shouldn't we get more? Don't we deserve more for doing more? You know, there's a time when doing more does not deserve more. And it's all the time when it comes to God's rewards and generosity. Because grace and generosity by definition, cannot be earned. 
These guys forgot that. Peter forgot that. They complained when they received what they agreed upon. <laughs> it reminds me of a trip. Uh, I was a youth minister at one time, and we took our kids to another state. We went from Tennessee to either Arkansas or New York. I forget. It was somewhere else. <laughs> we, go, we go to this state. And in this state, they had this passion play, and they had this tabernacle thing, like a life-size setup. It might be Arkansas. I, I don't remember. But it was, it, was, it was probably Arkansas. Yeah, it was, it was a great place, and everyone else remembers it. Uh, I take him to this place. Well, I'm a young guy. I don't have kids yet. I'm super young. I'm, like, learning how to do stuff. But these parents, so a few of them come with me. You know, they got to make sure everything's cool. They come with me, and I take these kids across state boundaries. We're driving in the classic white church van, and we, we go to this place. And I told the kids, listen, our first night, because we're on a budget. I mean, your parents don't want to spend more than $50 for you to go on. It's going to cost more than that just for gas, but, you know, it, you know, times are tough. So we're going to have macaroni and cheese as our main entree for dinner. And you know what? All the kids were excited. They were like, you know what, Jack? You're a great youth minister. And I'm like, you know, thank you. That's good. And they're like, we'll eat macaroni and cheese. I'm like, man, this is going so great. It's great. We get there, and there's this one kid. I can't have macaroni and cheese. And I love them, you know, because Jesus loves them. <laughs> I can't eat macaroni and cheese. Well, there was an adult volunteer with me, and he had the same administrative prowess that I had, which was pretty close to zero. And he said, he thought it was a good idea, and I thought it was a good idea. He's like, listen, I'll help you out, Jack. I'll go get some chicken nuggets or chicken strips for so-and-so. I'll come back. Everything will be fine. And me, with zero experience, is like, that sounds great. Thank you for serving the Lord. What do you think happened <laughs> when everybody was eating macaroni and cheese and Johnny So Lucky was eating chicken strips? I don't serve there anymore. I'm not at that church. That's, that's what happened. I'm, I'm, it wasn't that bad. I, that, that was not the tipping scale for that particular ministry, that season of my life. But everyone will eat macaroni and cheese as long as no one gets chicken strips. That's what, that's what this parable is teaching. People don't mind to sacrifice as long as everybody sacrifices. If someone else gets more than me, uh, I don't like it. And that's Jesus' point. Entitlement breeds envy. Comparison promotes entitlement, and once you feel entitled, man, that breeds envy, and you don't like what everyone else is getting. Anyway, let's see how the Landover responds. So verse 13, he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. And you know what? Why? If, if you're learning this story, always ask why. In the Bible, why is Jesus doing this? Why is he talking like that? Why is he bringing it up? Why is it, it's okay to ask why. It's not disrespectful. It's a student's heart of wanting to understand God so you can be drawn to him. Why would you do this? You want to know why the landowner keeps going back to the marketplace over and over, hour after hour? You know why he wants to give to the last man the same that he gave to the first? Because a man can't live on less than a day's wage a day. He needs that to survive. This is almost nothing. 
And the landowner tells the guys, listen, I want to give them everything they need, and I know they didn't deserve it. I still want to provide it for them. Don't I have the right to do with what, to do what I want with what is mine? Isn't it lawful? Are you questioning what I'm doing with my wealth? I want to be generous with them, and it makes you upset? And this is the phrase, are you jealous because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first last. He bookends it with the same thing he started with in 1930. All this in response to Peter's, what am I going to get? He does this on purpose. Are you jealous because of my generosity? Entitlement breeds envy. The word for jealous in that passage, which is point number three, entitlement breeds envy, uh, the, the word jealous is actually a two words. It's two separate words in this language. It means, why do you have an evil eye or a jealous eye, a wicked eye? Why is your perspective twisted when you see me be generous with someone else? You, you know the song, uh, count your many blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. Yeah, you've heard, it's an old time, every song is old to me, but it's an old time song. They say jealousy is when you count someone else's blessings. That's never good. Don't keep a record of that. Entitlement breeds envy, jealousy. Proverbs 14.30, a heart at peace gives life to the body. But envy rots the bones. They were upset that, that this landowner was so generous with the others. The truth is, they were given exactly what was promised to them. They were actually given what they agreed upon. They said, I'll work for you for a whole day for a, for a denarius. I'll do it. But they didn't like it after they saw what God or the landowner had done for others. Back in verse 13, he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. See again how God's heart is reflected in this? The landowner says, Friend. The landowner represents God. Friend. Was I not your friend when I hired you at the beginning of the day and I gave you work? Would you not still be standing here empty-handed, hoping for some miracle for you to be able to prepare, provide for yourself and your family? Have I not been your friend? Have I not been kind to you, compassionate to you, generous toward you in hiring you? Friend, I have done you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Take what's yours and go. The word go, it's a verb in this. Uh, take what's yours and go. Go means move on and be content. Take what's yours and be content. This is about contentment. Comparison, entitlement, and envy are enemies of contentment and they're stealers of joy. And he tells them, take what's yours and be content. Be satisfied, be happy, be joyful. Because contentment produces joy. That's kind of the, 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 the point at the end that Jesus wants to get through their mind. Contentment produces joy. If you were seeing this correctly, not perverted, not twisted, if you were to see this not with an evil eye but with a holy eye, with God's lens, you would be happy for them. 
How can I be happy when someone else, when someone else gets what I want? Ask yourself that question. How can I be happy when someone else gets what I want? I'll tell you how. When you're content with what you've got. When you're content with what you've got, you're happy for people to have as much as God will give them. But being content doesn't just mean we won't desire more. It just means we won't expect more. So being content doesn't mean you don't dream. It means you don't grumble. It doesn't mean that you won't want more. It means you don't expect more. So how can we be content with what God has given us? Well, being content can be summarized in three words, and I'll give them to you. Three words in the scriptures that speak toward contentment. Gratitude, being grateful. Humility, being humble. And third, satisfied. So there's grateful. Being grateful. Being grateful is a heart that genuinely says, what you've already given me is a gift. Thank you. This is shown in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. You are going to be in need. You're going to be in situations where you have petitions and requests, and you need God to provide. That is going to happen when you go to God for your needs. Do it with thanksgiving. This doesn't mean health, wealth, prosperity, you know, blab it, grab it, claim it, you know, name it, claim it. This is not saying uh, you should thank God because he's already going to give it to you. Does God give you everything you ask for? No, because he's wise and good and can in control. You don't need everything you want to ask for, neither me. God does not give us everything we ask for. He gives us what we truly need. Being grateful helps us be content because we realize what you've already given me is a gift. That's what that with thanksgiving. So grateful. Word number two, humble. Humble is a heart that says, I deserve nothing more. I read this passage at the beginning. Which one of you having a servant tending sheep or plowing will say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? Of course, none of you. No one would do that. Instead, will he not tell him, prepare something for me to eat, get ready and serve me while I eat and drink. Later you can eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he, do, does, he did what was commanded? The answer is implied, no. The, the, the master does not thank the servant for doing what the servant ought to do. In other words, he doesn't go over and beyond like, oh, you've really gone above and beyond. You've gone the extra mile. Thank you for doing your job. He doesn't give him praise for doing what he ought to do. In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. You know what Jesus was telling him? When you've done what, what is commanded you, there's nothing. What has God commanded us to do? What is the greatest commandments? If God said all the Bible summed up in two directives, what are the top two directives? Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now let me ask you just a plain, easy question. Have you ever done more than that? Has anyone, anyone, ever done more than love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbor as themselves? No. That is the duty of every Christian. What Jesus is trying to teach us, this is a hard maturity lesson. This is a hard lesson. 
If you've done the greatest commandments, you've only done what is required. You have done nothing extra worthy of praise. Humility. And then third, satisfied. It's a heart that says, Jesus, you are enough. Philippians 4, 11 through 13, speaking of contentment, Paul writes, I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content. Contentment is a learned skill. It takes maturity. It takes time. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. Even if I need, I've learned how to be content. Why? Verse 13, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Through him. He is the one that provides the strength and the power. I can be content. I can be content. I can be grateful and unworthy and satisfied in him because he is all I need. I recently was reading about a man named James Jeffrey in Kansas. Has anybody heard of James N. Jeffrey from Kansas? He's a wealthy businessman. He's passed away now, but wealthy businessman out of Kansas City. His uh, company even has influence here in central Kansas. And uh, not only was he, is he, a, was he a wealthy businessman, uh, but he, was, uh, he earned two honorary doctorates. It's not easy to do that. Two honorary doctorates, one in law and one in business administration. On top of that, he was an All-American football uh, something for uh, Baylor University. He was an All-American football player, and uh, he, was, he went into this Hall of Fame champions for the FCA. Uh, he was a great man. At one time, he even played for the Los Angeles Rams. And, and, you know, they didn't win uh, at the Super Bowl. I know you get a Stanley Cup for that. It's really great. But uh, <laughs> I got that joke from someone else. So that was so good. But the point is, James Jeffrey was the epitome of the American dream in the 20th century. One year, he was asked to speak at Baylor University's homecoming activities, which he was so happy to accept. However, this time the speech was startling. It was unexpected. Months earlier, he had learned that he had uh, pancreatic cancer. And his doctor told him, you have less than a year to live. They didn't know that at the time. He comes to Baylor University's activity. He's a keynote speaker, and he speaks. And someone who was there wrote this down about that night that he shared. As he spoke to us that night, the ravages of his cancer were already evident in his one strong body. But in his testimony, he said, I've told people all my life, Jesus is all you need. But you never know Jesus is all you need until you get to the place where he is all you've got. When he's all you've got, then you know he's all you need. And he passed away not long after that, that sharing. Jesus when he's all we need, when he's enough, we can be happy with his generosity and his rewards. Let's pray, and I think the band's gonna come up and lead us in a song. Father, thank you for this time together, and thank you for your word. Would you bless the preaching of your word, the singing of your word as we build up one another? Would you speak to our hearts, our desires that you would be glorified and that we would mature
in embracing your generosity and your grace, not just for ourselves, but one another.